a story just to start us. A heavily booked commercial flight out of Heathrow was cancelled and a single agent was rebooking a long line of inconvenienced travellers. Suddenly an angry passenger pushed his way to the front and slapped his ticket down on the counter. I have to be on this flight and it has to be first class, he insisted. Oh, I'm sorry, the agent replied. I'll be happy to help you, but I have to take care of these customers first. The passenger was unimpressed. Do you have any idea who I am? He demanded in a voice loud enough that all the passengers behind him could hear everything. Without hesitating, the agent smiled, picked up the public address microphone and said, May I have your attention, please, everyone? She broadcast through the terminal. We have a passenger here at the gate who doesn't know who he is. If anyone can help him find his identity, please come to the gate. As the man retreated, the people in the terminal burst into applause. Tonight we're going to be looking at identity and, uh, and in particular, who is Jesus. Um, that's why I picked that story. But actually, in coming here tonight, I sort of went, okay, who are we in that story? Where are you tonight as you come in? Are you perhaps someone fed up, been curing all day? It's been a bit laborious. And you're like, this is just another thing. There's another nuisance up there. Maybe you've had a fabulous day and you're the single agent who's there but can calmly manage everything in your stride and you're feeling pretty good tonight. But maybe some of you, and I think I was a bit like this on the way here, I think I was here when the traffic lights went red, was a bit like the angry passenger and everything's just in your way, you just want it to clear out. So where are you tonight? Tonight we're going to be looking quite a lot of um, passages of scripture. We're not so much into the history now because we're probably moving into slightly more familiar territory of the Gospels, but we're doing lots of scripture. Um, so there'll be lots of different passages and it could be very easy to sort of get lost tonight. So I'd encourage you just to try and focus on what we've been learning on about on the other weeks, the kingship of God. Try and keep that, when the verses come up, as the... As the um, as the line of, of, of um, thought that you'll be keeping through the evening. Right now I'm going to have that pause which the man should have at the counter. Right, so, Pat said, said there were maybe a couple of new people here this week. Well, where have we got to so far? We're on week four. Things aren't going so good for God's chosen people at the moment. The 12 tribes descended from Abraham, they'd had a high point of the kings of uh, David and Solomon. But now, the two tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, they rebelled continuously against God. And then they were conquered and exiled by the Assyrians and the Babylonians respectively. They've pretty much been destroyed, the people of God. Before we look forward any more, though, it would be good just to remind ourselves where this came from, why the impact on these two nations is so important to us. Compared to there have been in history thousands of other kingdoms which have come and gone, what's important about these two? 
Well, we've been looking. We've had the time of the kings with the prophets proclaiming over them. Now, the 12 tribes of Israel were the practical outcome of a pledge. This is going back into week uh, two. The pledge made to Abraham. The people went, went in the Exodus and made their way to the promised land. But before that... God's blessing is sorely required because at the beginning of the Bible we learnt about mankind's rebellion and rejection of God's kingship, the fall of Adam and Eve. And so actually in this point things are pretty much a mess. They seem like they're coming to an end except that the prophets are proclaiming, the same prophets who are proclaiming doom over the kingdom are also prophesying hope and restoration. I don't know if any of you managed to take a look at the book of Micah in the last two weeks, as I I suggested might be good. I don't know if that was interesting to see. You might have seen a lot of patterns of what we've been going through in the history there. But also things maybe looking forward that you might be familiar with as well. Let's have a look at a couple of passages from that book and, and another one as well. In Micah 2... Prophet prophet says, and this is a prophecy passed to the prophet Micah from God, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob, all of Israel, all of the twelve tribes. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. Remember, this is a split up people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. This is a prophecy over a destroyed people. It seems to be a restored kingdom of Israel. It's talking about with a king going ahead of them. Another example, Micah 4. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away, a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. A strong nation brought back from exile. Kingship restored to the city of Jerusalem. Moving to another example in Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. A king returning to Jerusalem. A humble king, but one that will rule from sea to sea, to the ends of the earth. To understand these, perspec- these passages from the perspective of those who read them originally, what we have to do for a moment is forget everything we know about Jesus. We've learnt so much about it, and when we cast a certain light and we go, oh, I know what that is, I know where that's leading. 
But if you were someone there at the time who was reading these, who was having them spoken, what would you think for the first time? Were the recipients of these prophecies really expecting the kind of Jesus king, the sacrificial servant king who would die on a cross? Was that their expectation? Or were they expecting a strong, conquering king who would surpass David and Solomon in their power and influence? As we approach the time in which Jesus was born, the remnants of the kingdom of Israel had returned to their land. They'd been allowed to come back. But they weren't the ones ruling their land. The superpower of the time was the Romans. And they had been invited into the region. They didn't actually conquer. They'd been invited into the region to support two weak princes in about 63 BC. And from that point on, the kings were appointed by Rome, not down some line of the Jewish people. And that's how Herod the Great came to the throne in 37 BC. He was a ruler appointed by the Romans and with tenuous links at best with the Jewish people. And it was this Herod who was on the throne when Jesus was born. And then in AD 6, the Romans put in place a Roman governor because rule was actually breaking down. The the kings weren't doing a good enough job, so to have control over the area, they brought in a Roman governor. And as a Roman province, the Jews lived under an army of occupation. One of the first things the Romans did when they moved in was to go into the holy place and, and ransack the temple. They were not very welcome. The calls for a deliverer from the Jewish people were great. And the Romans, therefore, had to put down minor insurrections during this time. So we've got a time of conflict, a ruler who's just not welcome, who has no respect for their faith, their religion. One in which they were just hoping for a deliverer. And this was the climate in which Jesus was growing up in. A hotbed of expectation and the climate in which he started to preach. So then he gets to preach. What did he preach? Well, we're making the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and more specifically to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Look at a couple of examples of what Jesus preached. In Matthew 9, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Actually, the word gospel means good news. So that's why they're called the Gospels. He was there telling the good news. The good news was about the kingdom of God. In Luke 8, after this, Jesus travelled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Luke 4, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom of God. To the Jews aware of the scriptures, it would have been instantly clear that Jesus was talking about the re-establishment of the throne of David 
an everlasting kingdom as had been prophesied and pledged to them. Jesus spoke to the crowds and he used parables to describe the kingdom. He used many, many different ways. He described it as seeds scattered on the ground, like a mustard seed, like yeast, like treasure hidden in a field, a fishing net, a merchant looking for pearls, an owner of a house, like a king settling his accounts, a king preparing a wedding banquet, like, the ten, like ten virgins. He talked a lot about the kingdom of God. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Another kingdom reference. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look through the Gospels and you will find it littered with talk of God's kingdom. So no wonder there was so much interest in what he had to say. If you're a people who have been expecting a deliverer, who had prophecies of a kingdom, who in the past have had great kings over you, and then someone talks about kingdom, kingdom, restoration of the kingdom, no wonder you're interested 4,000, 5,000 people gathering round to hear about the kingdom, restoration. He drew fantastically big crowds. And then just after that, just after the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you think I am? Mark records it as follows. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked them, who do the people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. What about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Peter answers, you are the Christ. Christ or Christos in Greek, which is Messiah, like Messiah in in Hebrew. And it can be pretty hard at first glance to understand the meaning of what Peter had said here. Again, it's another reference, it's another word, Jesus Christ or Messiah, that we associate only with Jesus. It has a meaning to us that we've given to it. And we know it and we say, Jesus Christ, yes, he died on the cross for our sins, And then he triumphed over death three days later. Yeah, we know that. But Peter didn't know that when he spoke those words. None of that had happened. And Peter certainly had no idea that they would. Christ actually means anointed one. One anointed with holy oil. In other words, it referred to a king. The word had been used in the Old Testament writings to refer to several Jewish kings already. It wasn't just used with Jesus. It had been applied to King Saul at one time, but it had also been applied to non-Jewish kings who God had favoured, such as Cyrus the Great. So it actually is a generic term, a little bit more, at least to Peter, of what it is to be a king. Maybe the king that they've been expecting, but still one of a number of kings. With all that Peter had seen and heard of Jesus, it can be understood why Peter may have found the confidence, even excitement, to declare Jesus 
to be the expected deliverer. Here was the Messiah, the restored kingdom king, who Peter thought would overthrow the Romans, restore Israel, and Peter had found himself a close follower of that king. But then in John it continues. He, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. If you think about it from Peter's perspective, you can see why it might make sense to rebuke Jesus. Oh no, you hold on, you're the king, aren't you? You're going to be this restored, great, powerful king. What's all this talk about suffering and death? No, that's, no, no, that's not the plan ahead for you. Jesus, you need to stop the, the negative talk and just concentrate on your strength and working up a kingdom here. Suffering, rejection, death, this wasn't the kind of talk that should come from the leader of an uprising, a future king. But that day it was Peter who got the real rebuke. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter had fundamentally misunderstood, and maybe even reasonably so, the nature of Jesus. He saw him through the eyes of the world, through the desires of mankind, through the desires of his people. And he wasn't the only one who thought about Jesus in that way. Many people fell away from Jesus after those big popular days. In John chapter 6, just after Jesus had fed the 5,000, John tells us that after the people saw miraculous signs that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. But Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The pattern we've seen is the people of Israel trying to put someone or something ahead of God, always. Now, they don't even really understand who Jesus is. And yet again, they're trying to establish for themselves an earthly king, rather than a heavenly king. I'm going to ask you just to have a moment of discussion talked about what Peter and the people of the time said Jesus was. Just want you just to take five minutes in your groups and um, I'm going to ask, I'm going to pass the mic around at the end just to give you a warning for just someone in the group to feedback briefly. Who do non-Christians, who does the world today, who do your friends, who do those you know, who would they say Jesus is? Give you five minutes just to discuss that in your groups. Okay. I'm going to draw that time to a close now. I'm going to ask, hand the microphone to this group first of all, and someone in that group to just say one, one or two things that you discussed. Who do you say that you say, if you, anyone? Or who did they say you say? It's on, I think. Um, yes, the people think it's... It's a myth. It's a sort of fairy story. Myth, fairy story. I think people thought he was an exceptionally holy man and a very good man, rather on the lines of Gandhi these days. 
great teacher. I was speaking from an atheist's point of view, and this was someone I knew. Mm-hmm. He just didn't exist. It's just a fairy story. Or some people even will pick up Monty Python's terribly well-researched views <laughs> and think he was just a, a nice guy who got sucked into a Messiah kind of uh, expectation. Wrong place at the wrong time, maybe, yes. I think people, some people think he's a good bloke. We had a few. We had um, a fairy story type figure or, or just a waste of time not existing um, through to um, a, good, a good guy, um, which we all, we all refute, really, in a way. And um, that he... What was the other one? Oh, an alien. An, an alien, alien, We yeah. decided that's possibly arguable. Right. Pads, I'll leave you to work on your <laughs> member of staff here. Pads almost uh, preempted. I could hear in a discussion. I'm just going to show you a little clip from, an, from, um, from Alpha. Um, Pads, I own rights over this, I think, because I think I went out and recorded it with some people, but, you know, you were in charge of Alpha at the time, but, you know. So the, we, we took a microphone onto the streets of Reading as part of Alpha a couple of years ago and just asked some people, who do you think that Jesus is? Well, I don't know, I'd say he's probably just sort of a big figure in the British society sort of thing, you know. He's uh, supposed to be a Christian country in that. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. I don't know, I suppose some people he's a role model, for others he's a bit of a myth. Who yeah. is he? Yeah. Yeah, he's God's son, with the same tears. Most, well, one of the most prominent spiritual leaders modern time, I'd say. Yeah. Um, I've really known him as someone who, like, um, was, like, I don't know, like, sort of born, like, to, like, help us. Oh, that's a hard question. (laughs) (laughs) Who do you see Jesus as? Well, Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, yeah, and what does that mean to you, he's the Son of God? Well, I'm a Catholic, so to me, it, it means he's. I don't know, you can't put it into words. <laughs> I was saying, well, what does the Son of God mean to me? Yeah. It would mean that oh, it's just Jesus and the Son of God. I... Yeah. Um, a very good man from years ago. Um, son of God. Yeah. Um, it's probably an idyllic figure that, uh, obviously relating to the olden days. Um, I don't. Uh, people see him as a as a figure of, of idolism, I suppose. Yeah. Um, other than that, I don't really uh, think too much about it these days. Yeah. Um, well, he's the fella in the Bible, God's son. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, I can't really say who Jesus is because I don't believe in Jesus and God and all that. He's portrayed to be this like all saint guy, isn't he? Yeah, on Every the cross day, and stuff like that. And if that was true, you know, if it was all such my fellow did all these and fed fish and supper and stuff like that to all these people while they put them on a cross and stuff like that, if you believe in it, which I don't. I think there, was, there were a lot of um, familiar themes from, from what you said there. One of the things which struck me about that um, is that so many people instantly said, Oh, Jesus was the son of God. But didn't really know what they meant by that. Because they know the knowledge in their head, he is the son of God, that's what we're taught. What does that really mean? Peter and many of Jesus' followers thought he would be the next great Jewish king. Who do we think 
Jesus is? Who do we actually, you know, we can say he's the son of God, but who do we inside, when you think about him, who do you think he is? Is it similar to either of the approaches, or one of the approaches you've heard there tonight? Or do you think as Christians, maybe we've created a whole new category for him about what we think he is? Important question is, who did Jesus say he was? Let's look at a passage in Matthew 12. Jesus responds to the Pharisees who accuse him of being in league with Satan after healing a demon-possessed man. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every king or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do you drive you do you do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is claiming to be the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come. It's not a distant thing, it has come. And to some extent, actually, we've got to get away from, I think, sometimes thinking of the kingdom of God as just being a distant heavenly realm. But rather anywhere where God's power and authority is evidenced. God's kingdom comes when God's will is done. So is Jesus just a messenger of the kingdom? Well, no, Jesus claims to be more than this. In John 8 tells of a debate Jesus was having with the Jews. They said, your father, Jesus said to them, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. And at this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. What had Jesus said? If he was just a messenger, an angel, that may have been something they might have been able to accept. But why on earth did they want to stone him? He had claimed an existence before the time of Abraham, which puts him into the category with God and angels. But it's this phrase, phrase, I am, which is the key trigger to their actions. This was a phrase used throughout the Old Testament, and in particular, the book of Isaiah, to talk about an eternal existence, not a temporary one when they said I am, but an eternal one, only ever attributed to God. So when he said I am, he was just saying, I am God. And they wanted to stone him. Jesus was not saying that he was only bringing the kingdom of earth to, to bring kingdom of God to earth, but that he was God. He was king of the kingdom. And if this is the case, we have to, I think, sometimes reevaluate the, the way we look at the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels. If Jesus is king, then he is not simply a messenger. He is not, what he says isn't just an optional thing, a bit of good advice for us. He's not just a good teacher, which is sometimes the way we can look at what he says. When he speaks about it, he isn't just passing on some information. He's making a proclamation as a king, a state of being. 
When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, it isn't just a nicety that maybe they, they, were, they would inherit the kingdom of heaven. He is proclaiming it. He is saying it as a statement of being, as surely as saying, let there be light. When Jesus tells them that the kingdom of heaven, what he says it will be like, he isn't just giving them a little bit of an idea what he thinks, he is saying it with the authority as a king. As Jesus' ministry continues, the question of who he is continues. In Mark 11, in a fulfilment of the Micah passage, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, cheered by the people. But then, after he'd cleared the temple, he was viewed as a threat to the existing earthly authorities. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. He was both loved and hated at the same time. Many of the original thousands of people, as I said, had now left him now. It was all getting a bit too tricky. It didn't look like he was going to just storm in the way and they just follow on behind him. He was saying, follow me into this, and they just went away. He had his followers around him, but a lot of them disappeared. Judas betrayed Jesus and he was arrested. The Sanhedrin had Jesus brought before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate as he had no authority, as they, the um, Sanhedrin, had no authority to put people to death. It says in John, Pilate then went back into the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Under pressure from the Jewish authorities and the crowds, Pilate sentenced Jesus to death as a king. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And they twisted together a crown, a crown of thorns, and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him, Hail! King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross 
they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. He was proclaimed a king in sarcasm, in humour, in dark humour, in mockingness. Proclaimed as a king, even as he was killed. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, showing that he had authority over death. And after 40 days, Jesus ascended to heaven to take up the everlasting throne as king. Jesus came to earth not just to die for us, but to establish on the, himself on the throne of the everlasting kingdom of God. As promised to Abraham and David, he fulfilled the pledge and the promises as foretold by the prophets. But going back to Jesus' teaching earlier on, just after he said, who do you think I am? Just after Peter's declaration of Jesus as Messiah, Jesus then called the crowd and disciples to him and said, he gave them a choice. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, for the good news, will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus laid out in the face of him being the King the choice we have to make. Will we follow him, denying ourselves, taking up his cross, giving control of our earthly life over to him for the work of bringing his good news to the world? Will we accept Jesus as the rightful authority in our lives and become part of God's everlasting kingdom, starting with our time on earth? Who is Jesus? Who is he to you? Is Jesus your king? The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unparalleled. 
unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. 